Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, good morning, everybody. We're going to be reading from Acts 16. Right. So do follow along because there's some crackers of names in here. Right. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a was a Jewish was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was Greek. The believers in Lystra and Iconia spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Also they travelled from town to town, sorry, as they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in, in faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of five of Phygia and Galatia, having been kept from the Holy, by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter by fear, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and leading city in the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside to the city gate, to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatria, named Lydia, a dealer of purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realised that their hopes of making money were gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. 
The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for lights, rushing in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptised. The jailer brought them to his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their, their officers to the jail with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we were Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escort them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Thanks, Paul. Good morning, everyone. Um, keep your Bibles open or your devices open to Acts chapter 16 or follow along on the Sunday Hub. That will help you to follow along with what I'm saying a bit better. Uh, there was an old friend of mine that I went to high school with, and he, he lives in Sydney now. I haven't seen him for years and years. He got in touch recently and said he was coming to Adelaide sometime this year and said it would be good to, to catch up. And, and I thought, that's great. I can, I can invite him along to church. Maybe I can ask him how he's going, thinking about... Christianity, but he wouldn't be interested. He's never had any interest in Christianity when I brought it up before. He's always been pretty comfortable not believing. Now, if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, I wonder if you find yourself thinking that way about people you know who don't share that faith. Or if you're here this morning just checking out what church is all about, what Christianity is all about, you might be wondering, does Jesus have any relevance in my life. Is Christianity really for me? Isn't it just for a particular type of person? Well, this passage introduces us to three very different people. 
an Asian businesswoman, a Greek slave, and a Roman prison guard. You'd struggle to find three more different people if you tried. And their previously unrelated lives are joined together in a powerful way. Their needs and their longings are all met the same way, by the freeing power of the gospel message. And these events can give us confidence that God is preparing all sorts of people to respond to Jesus in repentance and faith and be set free. And it all came about, you notice, because things went wrong, because there were closed doors. Now, things start off well enough. The Apostle Paul is traveling from Jerusalem. He's delivering the outcome of the Jewish, the Jewish council, uh, which we heard about last week. There was no email back then, so to deliver news, you had to physically go to places far off to tell the news. And despite a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas at the end of chapter 15, which sees them part ways for the time being, the journey is off to a good start. Paul is joined by Silas and Timothy, two men of good character. And verse five, the churches that they visit along the way are strengthened in the faith and they're growing in numbers. So far, so good. We, we think back right to the start of the book of Acts and the verse that sets the scene, chapter one, verse eight, where Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so far, so good. The church is continuing to grow as promised. But the journey quickly becomes discouraging. Twice, we read, they're prevented by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word, first in Asia and then in Bithynia. Now, we're not exactly sure what this means, and, and not for the first time in this passage. We're going to be just wishing that, that Luke had included a little bit more information about what it means. Perhaps it was an inner prompting or a prophecy that they weren't meant to enter these places. Maybe there was violent opposition from the people that lived there. Whatever it was, it was a closed door to mission in those areas. Uh, if we were to read the first few verses of the book of 1 Peter, we would see that the gospel does reach Asia and Bithynia eventually, uh, but this wasn't going to be the time for that to happen. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy eventually end up at Troas, probably quite confused and discouraged about this. Now, we might read this and think that at a surface level, it sounds a bit inconvenient, probably a bit like popping over to Allgate Foodland to buy something and realizing that it's shut, so having to go to Coles Bridgewater instead. Um, if we have a look at the map, though, of, of where these places were, if we think back to verse 1 in Derby all the way to verse 8 in Troas, that's a good 650-kilometer walk between those two places. So that's walking from here to the Grampians, probably. So quite inconvenient. But finally, there's a positive lead, isn't there? Paul sees this vision of a man begging them to come to Macedonia and to help them. Macedonia was just across the sea from Troas, so they jumped on a boat, they went across to the mainland on the other side, traveled inland to Philippi, convinced that this was where God wanted them to preach the gospel. Now, I'm going to hit the pause button there just for a sec because we have to realize that everything that happens next happens because God closed a door. He said no to plans that must have seemed right. And perhaps that's somewhat relatable for you in your life right now. Even if it didn't involve taking the gospel message to unreached groups of people, perhaps you had some sort of plan, some sort of picture of what life should look like. 
But God had a different plan. And now your work, your family, whatever it is, it's not what you had in mind. A door that you wanted to walk through has been closed. And if you're someone who believes in God, you you might be wondering, why is it that he's let this happen? We'll hold that thought because in the case of Acts 16, we're going to see that closed doors led to open hearts and changed lives. The lives of three very different people are about to intersect in a big way. Firstly, we meet Lydia, the businesswoman, verse 13. She's a dealer in purple cloth, which was a luxury item, so we can probably assume that Lydia was quite wealthy, quite well-connected, quite intelligent. She's the person who's got it all together. She's high-class society. And yet she knows that there must be more. She, the, um, the religions and the philosophies of her hometown have left her dissatisfied. They've left her wanting more. She has moved to Philippi. She's begun to worship God. She's taken on Jewish beliefs despite not having a Jewish background. But even this isn't quite satisfying her because when Paul speaks, she listens. She wants more. And she doesn't just listen. She responds. The Lord opens her heart to respond to Paul's message. So what's going on here? Is it Lydia who responds in faith or is it Jesus who opens her heart to faith? Well, the answer is yes. Both of those things are true, aren't they? A person speaks and a person responds freely of their own will and yet God is at work opening her heart. Now, if you're someone here who has made a decision at some point in your life to follow Jesus, then you'll know that that's a decision, even if it's a decision you've made over time and there's not a split second where it happened, you'll know that that is a decision that you've willfully and rationally made. And yet at the same time, God has opened your heart to do so. There's no one here, there's no one anywhere who has made a decision to follow Jesus purely on our own. Which is actually a great comfort when we think about telling other people about Jesus. Um, It's not... It's not up to us. It's God who ultimately opens hearts. It's not us who have, who have to perfectly persuade people. Uh, so we've met Lydia. She is, her heart has been opened. She's responded to the message. Her and her household have been baptised. And now we meet someone completely different. A slave girl with an evil spirit, exploited by her cruel owners. She's poor. She's a social outcast. She's a slave in every way imaginable, both physically and, and spiritually, mentally. Now, if Lydia's greatest need was a satisfying worldview to build her life on, this girl's greatest need is freedom, isn't it? We read that she follows Paul and the others around, shouting to, to everyone, these men are telling you the way to be saved. We don't know if she's doing this purely on her, on her own will, whether it's the spirit inside her that's making her do it. But eventually, Paul has had enough. He commands the spirit to leave her, and the spirit does just that. Jesus' name has brought her freedom. Now, we're not explicitly told whether she was converted or not. This is another bit in this passage where we'd love to have just a bit more more information. But the fact that this event is sandwiched between two other conversion stories make us think that it's pretty likely that we're meant to read here that she is. Certainly, at the the start of this passage, Lydia, sorry, the, the slave girl is enslaved in three different ways. She is a slave to her owners, she's a slave to the evil spirit inside her, and she's a slave to sin in the same way that anyone who hasn't accepted Jesus is a slave to sin. 
And we know that she's been freed from at least one of those slaveries, the, the slavery to the evil spirit. And I think we're supposed to see as well that this is, this is freedom from the slavery to sin as well. But her owners certainly aren't converted in this way. All this miracle meant to them was a huge loss of income. And so out of anger, they drag Paul and Silas before the authorities. Now, it's a bit hard for them to, to justify the true reason to do this, you know, if they're arguing that um, these guys healed a possessed slave that we were trying to exploit, it's not really going to carry a whole, lot of, <laughs> a whole lot of sympathy. But Philippi was a city with a lot of nationalistic Roman pride, and there was a great suspicion of anything that threatened to, to interrupt that, particularly if it came from Jewish people. And so it was pretty easy for them to stir up the crowd against Paul and Silas, who are beaten up and thrown in jail. Now, normally, you'd say this is a pretty negative turn of events, but, of course, God has plans. Paul and Silas are singing, they're praising God, and the prisoners are hearing them do this, which, you know, it's just a, a small little part in the passage there, but it's probably worth thinking that we shouldn't underestimate the impact of people watching us suffer in faith. I think there's a, a lot of value in people watching us do that. In fact, those are the times when our faith can shine brightest, and who knows what the impact was in the hearts and lives of those prisoners as they, as they watched Paul and Silas suffering but still praising God in the midst of it. We also meet the prison guard. Now, the prison guard was most likely a, a retired Roman soldier. And while it's a bit hard to character profile people from the information we have here, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that he probably wasn't the nicest guy going around. He's, you, you see there, he's asked simply to guard Paul and Silas carefully. He goes the next mile, though. He throws them in the inner cell, which was furthest from the sunlight, so in complete darkness. And he also fastens their feet in stocks, which is a, a form of torture. It would have meant that they couldn't sleep and couldn't sit with any comfort at all. Uh, but that night, when a huge earthquake hits, it's not just the foundations of the prison that are shaken, but it's the foundations of this prison guard's life as well. Thinking that the prisoners have escaped and knowing that the, the punishment he'll get for that will be death, he's about to kill himself before Paul stops him. Have a think about that for a moment. There, there was an earthquake that was completely out of his control that was about to get him the death penalty, he thought. That's the, the fleeting, unpredictable nature of life, isn't it? Um, for all of us here, life might seem really comfortable right now, but tomorrow, a, a bad medical diagnosis, an inattentive moment on the road, a, a poorly chosen word could turn any of our lives upside down. And the prison guard here has realized just how unstable his life foundation is. Once he realizes all the prisoners are still there, he falls trembling at Paul and Silas's feet and asks them, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now, we don't know exactly what brought him to this point. Maybe there were struggles he was going through beforehand. Perhaps his life flashed before his eyes as he, as he prepared to die. And he knew that there were bad things he'd done. He wondered if the good things that he'd done would outweigh the bad things. He wondered what was on the other side. Maybe he'd heard what the slave girl had been saying, that these men knew the way to be saved. Maybe he'd heard Paul and Silas singing joyfully to the prisoners, even in their hour of pain. 
whatever the case was, at that moment, he knew that he wasn't saved, he wanted to be saved, and these guys just might have the answer. Now, perhaps you don't know if you're saved. If there is a God, you're not sure whether he'd be happy with the life that you lived. You're not sure whether the pile of good things in your life outweighs the pile of bad things enough for God to be happy. What must I do to be saved? Well, there's a lot of things in this passage that we'd love to be more clear, but this one is as clear as it gets. What must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas tell him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus. It's the same message for the prison guard, his family, the slave girl, Lydia, Paul, for me, for you, for everyone. Believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus is the one who is perfect God and perfect man, who lived the perfect life and died in our place so that all the wrong things we've done that deserve God's anger, they're not, they're not placed on us for our punishment. They're placed on Jesus, which means that we can come before God with a perfect record. This is the way to be saved. It's not by trying and trying and trying to be a better person, but trusting that Jesus was the perfect person who I could never be. Trusting that his death has made me right with God, living with him as my king. The irony, of course, here is that the jailer was the one who needed freedom. You know, it was obvious to everyone that the slave girl needed freedom, but the jailer needed it just as much. The freedom of assurance of salvation, the freedom of not having to prove and justify himself. And he believes. This man who was about to kill himself minutes ago is filled with joy. This cruel man who did nothing to help Paul and Silas as they came in now washes their wounds. He has them to his house and he and his family are baptised. And by the time that Paul and his companions leave Philippi, a new church has been born. Orders come through the following morning for Paul and Silas to be released. But Paul isn't going quietly. They beat us illegally, he said. Let them come and escort us out. And as you can imagine, this puts the magistrates in a bit of an awkward position, doesn't it? They, they realise that they've broken the law, that they've done the wrong thing. But they also want to restore public order. And as you read through the book of Acts, you sort of get the picture that public order and Paul don't, don't go particularly well together. But eventually, they negotiate for Paul and Silas to leave the city, which they do, but they take their time before leaving, partly because they've just been beaten to within an inch of their lives, and partly so that they can go back to Lydia's house and visit the brothers and sisters, the new members of the Philippian church. Lydia, her household, the prison guard, his household, we think the slave girl as well, and, and others. See, Paul has the interests of this church in mind right from the start. The, the protest that he makes to the magistrates in verse 37, it's not coming because he's self-indulgent. You know, you, you read about Paul and he doesn't, doesn't strike you as a particularly self-indulgent guy. He wants to clear his mission of any hint of law-breaking, any controversy at all, so that the church's integrity isn't clouded in any way. He doesn't want people who join the church to in any way be impacted by the fact that he's been in prison. He does it for the sake of the church 
and for the sake of the spreading of the gospel. It's a bit like Timothy's circumcision right at the start of the, right at the, start of the chapter. If you, uh, if you remember last week, Paul began chapter 15 by arguing that you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And yet, here he is inflicting it on poor Timothy. And we wonder, why, why is he doing that? And it's, as Chris explained last week, it's not that Paul thinks that Timothy needs to be circumcised to be saved, but it's so that there's nothing whatsoever to distract Jewish people from hearing and responding to the gospel. So it's not a salvation issue, it's a mission issue. As we come to the end of Acts chapter 16, three people's and probably, probably many more people's lives have been changed by this gospel message. It shakes us out of any belief that Christianity is only for a certain type of person. We've got three very different people, three people who woke up that morning in completely different life situations, completely different felt needs, all finding joy, meaning, fellowship and freedom in the same gospel message. And it was all because Paul and Silas's plans completely fell apart under the sovereign planning of a God who had a better idea. Now, if this message of salvation in Jesus isn't something that you've thought about before, it's not something that you've taken on as your own belief, I wonder, can you relate to any of the three people that we've met in this passage? Do any of their stories and their life situations ring true for you? Maybe it's the successful upper-class thinker who wants a satisfying worldview to build her life on. Maybe it's the middle-class toiler who looks to have it all together from the outside, but deep down he knows his moral shortcomings only too well. Maybe it's the lower-class girl who is in a hopeless situation in life and sees no way out of it. Could the message that changed their lives and changed millions of other lives since change yours as well? Now, if this gospel message was true, if Jesus had actually died to cover your guilt and shame, to secure you with an identity of being a loved child of God, so that there's no need whatsoever for you to prove or justify yourself in any way, because Jesus has done that on your behalf, if that was true, what difference would that make in your life right now? What freedom would that bring? For those who have accepted Jesus, We can't read the book of Acts and not think about our own mission today, both the mission in our own personal lives and the mission that we have as a church. See, God has put us all exactly where he wants us right now. Even if that involves some closed doors or some confusing detours or some frustrating journeys that you can't comprehend, God has put us where he wants us. So when you go to work tomorrow or to school tomorrow, uh, when you hang out with your friends tomorrow, could God be preparing someone's heart like he was in Philippi that day? I heard someone once describe evangelism, so sharing our faith, as continuing a conversation with someone that the Holy Spirit has begun, which I found a, a helpful way of thinking about it. Perhaps the Spirit has begun that conversation in someone's life near you. And you're the person who's about to walk in and continue it. At a a previous church that I was at, we used to run an event from time to time. We ran it over four weeks. And the aim of it was for people that were just checking out Christianity to come along and and to hear the gospel message explained over those four weeks. And, And at the end, 
we would ask if people wanted to put their trust in Jesus. And praise God, we ran it a few times and a number of people did put their trust in Jesus over that time. They, they came along, they listened, they asked questions, they weighed it up in their own minds and eventually they, they made a decision. And in pretty much every case, although God used the events to get them over the line, it wasn't, it wasn't just because we ran the events that people came along. You know, people weren't sort of, people that had no connection with church before weren't refreshing our church website and waiting for us to put an evangelistic event up there. It was because people at church had the boldness to invite friends and family members along. There was one man who came along and gave his life to Jesus because his Christian next door neighbor had invited him and his partner over for dinner. And this Christian man had shared his faith story with him and then invited him along. There was a woman who came along and she gave her life to Jesus because a Christian girl in her reception class had shared about Jesus with her and for 20 years plus continued to, to share about Jesus and to pray with her. And eventually she'd invited her along to this event and it, it had been at this event that this woman finally gave her life to Jesus. So God can use us in the house, the school, the workplace, the family, wherever he's placed us. The birth of the Philippian church, it's also an encouragement for all of us as we think about our vision as a church, as we prepare, God willing, to plant a new gathering next year and, and to make a dent on the tens of thousands of people in the Adelaide Hills who don't yet know Jesus. Is God preparing hearts even now? Are we trusting that as we go about this, God is going ahead of us. He's preparing hearts and minds even as we speak. The message of Acts chapter 16 is that God can open hearts even by closing doors. He's preparing all sorts of people to respond to the good news of Jesus in repentance and in faith and be set free. And he can use us wherever he's placed us to achieve that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the freeing gospel message. As we think about the freedom that it brought to the slave girl, to the prison guard, and even to the woman who looked to have it all together. As we think about the freedom it's brought to many since, as we think about the freedom that it offers us, the freedom of not needing to be good enough in our own strength, but trusting that Jesus was good enough for us. Father, please give us confidence that as we take that message out, as we share it with people, as we tell people about it, that you are preparing hearts and minds even now. We ask that you would use, use us to continue conversations that you have begun by your spirit with people and that the fruit of this would be changed lives and people who know Jesus as their Lord and King. Amen.